Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, June 13th, 2023. There's just one anniversary of note on June 13th, 1983. The space probe Pioneer 10, which had been launched in 1972, crossed the orbit of Neptune and thus became the first man-made object to pass the orbits of all the major planets of the solar system. It continued to transmit telemetry data until April 2002 uh, and still sent weak signals back to Earth until January 2003, uh, but it's been contact has been lost since then. It is believed now to be further from the sun uh, than any spacecraft save Voyager 1, although Voyager 2 will surpass it at some point in the next few years. In the news, uh, the International Organization for Migration reported Tuesday that 2022 was a very deadly year for migrants in and around the Middle East and North Africa. The IOM reported 3,789 migrant deaths in the region last year, the most since 2017's 4,255 deaths. That figure almost certainly undercounts the true number given the difficulties inherent in trying to track migration data. In the Middle East and Syria, state media is reporting that the Israeli military has launched another missile strike targeting Damascus and or its vicinity. I don't have any further details uh, at this time, but there may be more to say tomorrow. In Yemen, the United Nations said on Tuesday that it has obtained insurance for its salvage operation involving the marooned FSO Safer, uh, or Safer, the oil tanker that's been stuck off of Yemen's Red Sea coast since 2015, carrying some 1.1 billion million, excuse me, million barrels. Uh, I always want to say billion there, sorry, million barrels, 1.1 million barrels of oil within its deteriorating hull. Uh, that should clear the way for the UN to begin a ship-to-ship -ship transfer of said oil in relatively short order. The salvage team apparently believes that the tanker is still intact enough to withstand that operation, though it is continuing to inspect the ship while waiting for a new tanker to arrive. Were the oil to spill into the Red Sea, it would cause an environmental catastrophe that would cost billions, in this case to be as appropriate, of dollars to clean up. Uh, on to Israel-Palestine, where Israeli security forces killed one Palestinian man and wounded eight other people during an arrest raid in a refugee camp in the West Bank city of Nablus on Tuesday. The target of the raid appears to have been among the wounded, but was not, in fact, as far as I know, arrested. Uh, elsewhere, four Israeli soldiers were wounded in a drive-by shooting incident near the West Bank city of Jenin. Uh, and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas is in China this week discussing a few potential Chinese business deals in the West Bank. Any interaction between the PA and the Chinese government raises speculation about Beijing uh, potentially mediating talks between the PA and the Israeli government, but that has yet to materialize, and it would be a much more challenging diplomatic effort, I think, than was China's mediation between Iran and Saudi Arabia, as that built on years of similar work by regional governments, particularly Iraq and Oman, uh, that would simply, there's simply no uh, parallel for Israel-Palestine. In Iran, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu briefed a Knesset meeting on Tuesday about recent talks involving the U.S. and Iran over what he characterized as a quote-unquote mini-agreement on Iran's nuclear program. According to him, this proposal involves three main components, an Iranian pledge not to enrich uranium beyond the 60% level, the release of an unspecified amount of frozen Iranian government funds, and a prisoner swap. The contours do seem to align with a number of recent sketchy reports that we've talked about in this newsletter. Laura Rosen, uh, citing a senior U.S. official, reported in her newsletter on Tuesday that there have been indirect contacts between the U.S. Uh, and Iranian governments of late focused on two tracks. And I have a little excerpt here, but I'll just summarize it for you. Uh, one of the tracks is the U.S. Uh, these U.S. officials say that they are 
uh, conveying warnings to Iran, unambiguous warnings, uh, not to enrich uranium to weapons-grade levels. That's 90% plus. Uh, the other is that they're trying to convince the Iranians, supposedly, allegedly, uh, to make some concessions to demonstrate that they're, uh, they want to... Uh, let's say, de-escalate tensions over their nuclear program. The way that these officials characterize this uh, to to Rosen is uh, in the form of basically what sounds like uh, unilateral Iranian concessions. I doubt that the Iranians are prepared to make any unilateral concessions. Uh, and I think it's safe to assume that they have talked about some kind of quid pro quo that would be uh, akin to what Netanyahu was talking about above. Uh, but the Biden administration just isn't ready to admit that yet. Uh, on to Asia and India, with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi scheduled for a state visit to the White House later this month. According to Reuters, the Biden administration is prodding New Delhi to cut through the red tape surrounding a potential $2 billion-plus uh, sale of U.S.-made MQ-9B Sea Guardian drones to India. Part of the problem appears to be the whopping price tag, as the Indian government keeps lowering the number of drones it says it wants to buy. Uh, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, is in India to prepare for Modi's visit and told reporters on Tuesday that the administration is hoping to, quote, remove obstacles in defense trade and high-tech trade and investment in each of our countries, end quote. The U.S. government, of course, views improving military and commercial ties with India as a major piece of its China containment policy. But since Russia invaded Ukraine, it's also been trying to pry apart the close India-Russia relationship. In Myanmar, a new report from the Peace Research Institute of Oslo says that some 6,337 civilians have been killed in conflict since that country's military seized power in February 2021. That's substantially higher than any previous count of civilian deaths. According to the report, the military has respons been responsible for at least 3,003 of those deaths, while rebels have been responsible for at least 2,152 of them. Nearly all of the rest could not be attributed, so probably at least one of those figures is too low, and uh, I would assume both. In China, Jim Loeb over Responsible Statecraft reports on a new poll that suggests considerable, considerable antipathy about the new Cold War within countries where one might expect higher levels of support for the United States. And I'll read you a couple of paragraphs from his piece. Nine out of ten adult citizens of three key Asian, East Asian nations with which the United States has enjoyed close military ties are either somewhat or very worried about a geopolitical confrontation between the U.S. and China, according to a new poll released Monday by the Eurasia Group foundation an average of 62 percent of respondents in singapore south korea and the philippines said they believe more intense competition between the two global powers will have negative consequences for their country's national security according to the survey which was carried out by yougov Respondents also expressed concern that escalating tensions between Beijing and Washington could result in political polarization within their countries as opposing parties would be pressed to take sides with one power or another uh, in Oceania and Fiji, uh, the Fijian and New Zealand governments have concluded a new defense pact covering training, maritime security, and disaster relief assistance. Uh, Fijian Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka suggested, as we noted in the newsletter last week, during a visit to Wellington, uh, that such a deal was on the verge of completion. And as I noted at the time, this has new Cold War implications. New Zealand is in many respects a U.S. proxy, and Fiji had previously been operating under a law enforcement cooperation 
cooperation agreement with China that Rambuka's government has reportedly put under some sort of review. In Africa and Sudan, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, that's the Horn of Africa Economic Political Bloc, has appointed four of its member states, Ethiopia, Somalia, South Sudan, and the chair, Kenya, to a new committee focused on ending the conflict in Sudan. This represents a shift from IGAD's previous diplomatic effort, which didn't include Ethiopia and was chaired by South Sudan rather than Kenya. The reorganized group's efforts are already off to a shaky start, and as much as Sudanese military commander Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has preemptively rejected the quartet's proposal to organize an in-person meeting between him and Rapid Support Forces Commander Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Uh, hopefully they worked out some sort of backup plan, because I guess this one isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are reportedly about to uh, ditch or at least substantially downgrade their mediation efforts. Uh, something about their complete failure to achieve anything, I guess. Uh, so IGAD may be the only remaining option from a negotiating standpoint. In Nigeria, at least 23 people have been killed in what seem to be tit-for-tat attacks in central Nigeria's plateau state. Uh, Plateau is heavily affected by the farmer-herder violence that is increasingly common across central Nigeria. On Saturday, two herders were killed, uh, and a series of subsequent attacks on farming villages since then uh, have left at least 21 people dead. I'm not entirely clear on whether these incidents are directly linked, but it seems plausible at least. Uh, In Ethiopia, Al Jazeera reports on the lingering uncertainty regarding a large number of Tigrayan prisoners of war. I'll read you just a couple of paragraphs. Almost a year on from the truce, peace is gradually, has gradually been cemented in Tigray. Uh, even as the, the fighting seems to have ended, the TPLF has been deregistered from a government terror list, uh, and there has been a mass release of ethnic Tigrayans who were in federal security forces before their detention. An interim administration has been set up in Tigray. Uh, telecommunication services and transport links have resumed there, and the regional forces have surrendered most of their arms as outlined in the deal. But some details from the war remain unclear. The fate of hundreds... Maybe thousands of fighters and other prisoners of war, all of Tigrayan ethnicity, detained during the war, is shrouded in silence. Uh, There's more there at the link. Uh, On to Europe and Russia. The Dutch media outlet NOS is reporting that the Dutch Military Intelligence Service, the MIVD, warned the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency that last June that there was a Ukrainian plan in the works to blow out the Nord Stream gas pipelines. Anonymous U.S. officials uh, have said that the CIA then approached Ukrainian officials to object to that operation, only to be told that the Ukrainians had already decided not to pursue it. Somebody, of course, did blow up the pipelines in September, and increasingly it seems Western governments are emphasizing that it was Ukraine apparently acting alone, and indeed in contravention of warnings not to do it, uh, that was responsible. Is that plausible? Sure. Is there any reason to believe the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies as they absolve themselves of any responsibility for the bombing? Not particularly. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying the CIA or or any of these other agencies was directly responsible or or even heavily involved in the attack, but that warning that they gave the Ukrainians may not have been quite as strident as it's being portrayed, assuming there actually was a warning. 
in Ukraine. Uh, Reuters says that it's been able to confirm that Ukrainian forces do control the village of uh, Neskuchna in Donetsk Oblast, which would in turn confirm that their big counteroffensive has achieved at least one territorial gain over the past several days. That confirmation would undercut Russian claims amplified by Vladimir Putin on Tuesday during some sort of weird uh, press availability for warmongering bloggers and correspondents, uh, that the counteroffensive has been a complete failure thus far. Uh, This is Putin's story, and he's apparently sticking to it. Even so, there are a lot of questions about how effective the counteroffensive has been in terms of weighing territorial progress against casualties and loss of materiel. Uh, The Russian military reportedly counterattacked on Tuesday in areas where the Ukrainians have claimed progress, and there are concerns that the Ukrainians are advancing beyond the effective range of their air defenses, leaving leaving themselves vulnerable to Russian airstrikes. The Russians also bombarded the city of Kriviri, uh, on Tuesday, killing at least 11 people. In Kosovo, Prime Minister Alban Kurti suggested on Tuesday that he's prepared to hold new elections in the four predominantly Serb communities in northern Kosovo that are currently in upheaval over April's heavily boycotted vote. Uh, as you uh, may know, if you've been keeping up with the newsletter, Serbs skipped that election and have been protesting and clashing with Kosovan security forces since the winners, quote unquote, if you can call somebody who uh, finishes first in a, an election with 2% turnout a winner. Uh, all of them, of course, ethnic Albanians since the Serbs boycotted. Uh, ever since they took office last month, it's, it's led to protests and sometimes violent clashes. Uh, Kurti also announced plans to reduce the Kosovan police presence in those communities, ostensibly because ethnic Serb unrest has diminished uh, there, although the arrest of an alleged Serb military leader on Tuesday, or militant leader, rather, on Tuesday is threatening to re-escalate the situation. Kurti has been under pressure from Kosovo's Western pals who want to see a reduction in tensions between Serbia and Kosovo in order to clear the way for both to join the European Union uh, to undo it. He's under pressure to undo April's elections and offer some sort of autonomous status to Kosovan Serbs. Uh, in Spain, the Conservative People's Party and its uh, and the far-right Vox Party agreed on Tuesday to form a coalition government in Spain's Valencia region. I mention this because Spain is, of course, holding a national election next month, and this deal seems like a template for an arrangement whereby the People's Party, which once might have argued that it was a bulwark against the far-right's return to power, uh, will instead shepherd the far-right back into power in the form of Vox uh, in order to form a governing coalition. This is, of course, it's just something to keep in mind heading into that election. Uh, and finally, uh, in the United States, uh, there's a piece by John Pfeffer at Foreign Policy and Focus uh, where he looks at the neocolonialism that is increasingly becoming uh, an inseparable part of our clean energy transition. Uh, I'll read you just a couple of paragraphs here. There are several major problems associated with this new rush to acquire critical raw materials. First of all, there's just not enough to go around. The Earth doesn't contain enough lithium that we can access for all combustion vehicles to switch to battery-powered ones. Nor is there enough rare Earth elements, uh, indium and neodymium, to build all the solar panels and wind turbines that would be needed to replace oil and natural gas. This relative scarcity is fueling the desperation in industrial countries. Whoever can secure the greatest access to these raw materials will be the country best poised to profit from the switch away from fossil fuels. It also means that global South countries, in theory, hold some very good cards in this global poker game. 
But these countries haven't yet figured out a way to leverage those riches safely and sustainably to improve their position in the global economic pecking order. A second problem is environmental. The mining of these materials causes considerable damage to the environment. The mining and processing of lithium, for instance, draws heavily on water resources in dry areas like the Lithium Triangle, where Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile all converge. Rare earth minerals contain radioactive materials that pose a risk to workers and surrounding communities. A third problem is the neocolonial nature of the relationship between northern manufacturers and southern suppliers of raw materials. In the colonial era, Japan basically plundered Korea for its rice and iron. Today, industrialized countries are trying to extract lithium and other critical raw materials at the lowest possible prices through concessions built into free trade deals that eliminate or lower tariffs. These trade agreements are also designed to make it more difficult for Global South countries to pursue industrial policies that could build strong next-generation industries to compete with those in the Global North. In other words, the Global North is kicking away the ladder that South Korea used to climb to prosperity. Uh, on that note, uh, thank you all for reading and or listening to the newsletter, uh, and especially to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers uh, and paid foreign exchanges subscribers most of all. Uh, because it's you guys who make this newsletter possible. And if you're enjoying the newsletter, if you're getting anything out of it, please do consider uh, making the jump to paid subscriber and helping to support uh, support it and keep it going and keep it growing. Um, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.